The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show today is about an upcoming international privacy summit in Washington, D.C. And also, we're going to talk with this expert about what the hottest privacy issues are for 2011 and beyond. We are going to welcome back our guest that we've had on twice before. He's always articulate, wonderful, really knowledgeable, and I'm very excited to have Trevor Hughes with us again. He is the president and CEO of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, or the IAPP. In his role, Trevor leads the world's largest association of privacy professionals, and I'm thrilled to be a member. Trevor is an experienced attorney in privacy, technology, and marketing law, and he's provided testimony before the U.S. Congress Commerce Committee, the Senate Commerce Committee, the Federal Trade Commission, the Home Affairs Committee of the British Parliament, and the European Union Parliament on issues of privacy, surveillance, spam, privacy-sensitive technologies, and he's a member of the first class of Certified Information Privacy Professionals, which is CIPP, and recently completed with his co-author, Reed Freeman, Privacy Law in Marketing. So that's pretty exciting. Trevor has previously served as the Executive Director of the Network Advertising Initiative, and we talked about that in the last show he was on, which is a leading online privacy trade association, and the Email Sender and Private Provider Coalition, another trade association working on email policy and practices. Prior to these roles, Trevor was Director of Privacy and Corporate Counsel for Engage, which is a leading online media and software company. And before that, Trevor worked as Corporate Counsel for Unum Provident, where he focused on legal issues associated with advertising and online insurance transactions, which shows you how much a great experience he has. And also, he's an adjunct professor of law at the University of Maine School of Law, and he's lectured on privacy at Harvard, MIT the London School of Economics, Boston College, lots of other places. And he's been featured on National Public Radio's Morning Edition, the PBS Nightly Business Report, BBC Radio, and the Washington and in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, PC World, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and Business Week. He 
well, I guess he walks on water. But other than that, he's a great guy, and I am always thrilled to see him at the annual summit. And we're going to talk about that because I think this is a huge issue with all the technology and things that are coming all around us every single day. You can learn more about this Privacy Association and Trevor at privacyassociation.org. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Hi, Mari. Good to be here. Well, this is going to be an exciting summit. Every year, I remember the first year that I went, which was, what, like 10 years ago? Is that right? Was it that long ago? Running about 10 years. Yeah, and I remember Beth and I presented at that one, and it was a smaller group. And every time, every year that I go, it gets bigger and bigger. How many members do you have right now? Well, funny you should ask today, because uh, the office was hopping this afternoon. We passed 8,000 members just this afternoon. And that's international members. That's, that's right. We have 8,000 members in about 50 countries around the world. Wow. So what topic do you expect to get the most buzz at this summit? And I want to, by the way, I want to say when the summit is, it's coming up very soon next month, March 8th through the 11th in Washington, D.C. So what are the, what's the biggest topic do you think that's going to get the buzz? So it's a very interesting question. And I think uh, the answer is, is that there is not a single thing that's going to get the most buzz because there are so many things creating buzz right now in the field of privacy. Um, One of the realities that we certainly see is that it's hard to keep up with all of the issues currently in play. There are multiple issues in the online world with behavioral advertising, uh, with cookies, with online privacy generally, with social media. Um, There uh, remain issues in the mobile space. There's issues in governmental privacy with data being used for um, uh, anti-terrorist activities and and data transfers uh, between Europe and the United States. There are so many issues that are vexing the marketplace and society uh, right now when it comes to privacy, that um, any one of our sessions, any one of our topics is certainly buzzworthy for some community that we serve out there. Exactly. When you think about workplace privacy, personal privacy, financial privacy, healthcare privacy, it's just, it is mind-boggling. It really is. I mean, it's it's exciting to be in this field, but it is almost overwhelming. That's why we need each other, right? Indeed it is. (laughs) Well, several several of the upcoming keynote speakers at this this upcoming IAPP Global Privacy Summit are going to focus on the concept of choice. I saw that there's several of them that have written books on choice. So can you kind of explain what they mean by choice? Because people who are listening may not know what we're talking about. And how, how does it relate in the realm of privacy? Absolutely. So in the field of privacy, um, public policymakers, legislators, regulators, politicians, um, uh, business leaders, academics, advocates have for decades now, going back probably 40 or 50 years at this point, been struggling with how to manage privacy as a concern in society. And there have been a number of tools that have emerged. And those tools generally fall into an architecture that we call the fair information practices. Sometimes people call them FIPS, fair information practices. And 
and at, at the foundation of the fair information practices are two fairly fundamental concepts. Um, one, notice, tell people what you're doing with their data, and two, choice, ask their permission, either in, in the form of an opt-in, an opt-out, uh, some form of choice um, for what you're doing with their data. Now, those two concepts particularly, and perhaps fair information practices more broadly, have come under fire in recent years as perhaps being insufficient or um, um, not fully effective in today's information economy. And um, isn't that part of it because people don't understand the choices that they're making I, and I it's think, not transparent for them? I, I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, if we took notice really quickly and, and looked at that issue, um, notice is one of the foundational concepts of the fair information practices. It's one of the primary tools that we use to address privacy concerns in society. I don't think there are many people today who can say with a straight face that they read every privacy policy that they encounter prior to sharing their personal information. And they may not even understand it if they did read it. Indeed. <laughs> and so we have to ask the question, what then is, is the purpose of that notice? Why, if, if we're trying to use that notice as a mechanism to provide better privacy, but no one's reading it, is it really providing better privacy? So that's one of the foundational concepts. The other is choice. And, and choice it seems to be, when you think of it, a, a little purer as, as a concept. You ask people, can we do this? And they say yes or no. Or you say, we're going to do this. Please tell us if you don't want us to do this. Right. And we've seen this in many forms as we surf the web. You register for a website, and there's a little checkbox at the bottom that's either checked or unchecked. And it says, you know, please check here if you would like to receive additional materials or marketing messages from our site. Um, that's choice. That's, that's a, a construct of choice. Well, it turns out that this idea of choice, or perhaps even the ideal of choice, is, is being questioned as well. So we have um, three great great authors and academics who are going to explore this from a number of different angles. Um, Sheena Iyengar is a professor, and she wrote a book called The Art of Choosing. And what Sheena looks at is the cultural concept of choice and how choice in some cultures is not seen as a positive. It may actually be seen as a negative. She offers examples where in some cultures, uh, people are very uncomfortable making choices. They are far more comfortable with our authoritative figures making decisions for them. Many Asian cultures fall into those categories. And so when we think of it in a privacy context, we then have to question whether choice is an appropriate tool to respond to privacy concerns. When choice actually doesn't respond to concerns, it may make people feel more uncomfortable in those uh, in those societies. So Sheena Yengar will examine the, the cultural concepts of choice and how an American thinking of choice um, is not a universal way to think about choice. 
And, and different cultures around the world think of it in very, very different ways. And um, I'm just wondering, and I haven't read the book, but I intend to because I want to interview her too. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I wonder, and I don't know if you've read it yet either, but I just wonder about if it's in economically advanced cultures that you know that they want choice in economically not advanced cultures maybe they don't i just wondered what that i'm i'm looking forward to reading it to find out the answer you know it it's it's interesting because Japan is one of the largest economies in the world and one of the more advanced ec- economies in the world. And, um, and they have a very different way of thinking about choice in their society. Now, to be very clear, Sheena Yengar is not writing about privacy specifically. Um, she's writing about the concept of choice, the ideal of choice in society. And I, I think it illuminates some of the challenges that we see when, when it comes to choice in today's, uh, in today's information economy. It's funny. It makes me think of I, I was having lunch with my computer consultant, and we went to lunch, and I said, okay, so I, this is what I'm going to get. What do you want? He goes, oh, I hate making choices. Don't you ever get sick of making choices? And I said, interesting. I said, okay, you want me to order for you? And then he goes, no, 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 I'll, I'll order for myself. And I, I was laughing because I was listening to some jokes about why men want to get married so they don't have to make choices anymore. Yep. <laughs> and I just thought that was, you know, kind of struck me funny. Here he is. He's a he's a brilliant um, IT person. And he goes, don't you ever get sick of making choices? <laughs> I well, said, not it's, really. <laughs> it's, it's funny you should raise that example, because that's actually exactly what Barry Schwartz, who is one of our other keynotes, is going to talk about. He talks about something called, that he calls the paradox of choice. Now, Barry Schwartz is controversial, and I'll, I'll put that out there right away. He, he has been um, criticized as being um, uh, anti-market or anti, anti-consumer. But what Barry points out, and I think, I think there is a truth here that, that we can't ignore, is that when we take the concept of choice to extremes, it actually is not liberating, it's actually intimidating and, and, and sometimes uh, exhausting, and it actually has the exact opposite effect that we hope for. And, and it's overwhelming. I mean, it, and I can relate to that myself. I mean, when I get and I, I see all the choices on these new phones, for example, you know, I had yep. to get a new phone. I, I finally said, okay, I'm done with my BlackBerry. I'm going to join the new revolution. And, and I got an Android. And there were so many choices, I took the darn thing back, and then I got a Windows phone. So that was less choices, but I can get it. I, I see what you're saying, because it is overwhelming, Trevor. Yep. No, it, it absolutely is. And Barry Schwartz describes a number of um, of experiments that have done, been done by scientists, by sociologists, to explore um, this issue. Um, in fact, Sheena Yengar um, has done some research on this where um, there are um, studies done in grocery stores. Uh, a very famous one is um, consumers are presented with 30 choices for chocolate chip cookies um, in one group, and in another group, they're presented with five choices of chocolate chip cookies. So in the 30 group, there's every variety that you can possibly imagine. In the group with just five choices, there's 
you know, a standard chocolate chip cookie, a double chunk, a soft and chewy, a low fat. <laughs> you, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and consumers are uh, uh, required to make a choice. They buy one of the packages of cookie in each group, and then they survey them afterwards about the satisfaction that they had with their choice. And somewhat paradoxically, and this is why Barry Schwartz, I think, calls it the paradox of choice, those who are presented with more choices express less satisfaction with the choice they made than those who were presented with less choices. And the reason is, is that when we're presented with too much information as human beings, we use all sorts of tricks to just make a decision quickly, but we are left with anxiety about the, the, the idea that there might have been a better choice still on the shelf. Yes. And, and so consumers, people, we... You and I. ...as a society, <laughs> we, choice can sometimes actually lead to less satisfaction, not more. And, you know, it's confusing. You know, I just had to get a new car, okay, which is like the worst thing to have to do. I, I, you know, negotiated for five hours. And I went on a website that compared different cars, you know, because I knew I lived in Southern California. I knew I wanted to get another convertible, and I I hate to rub it in because you're on the East Coast freezing. But the truth of the matter is I kind of knew what I wanted, all right? I I knew what I wanted, but then to try and look at things that are confusing to understand, okay, that, you know, you want to look at, am I comparing apples and apples, or am I comparing apples and oranges, or am I comparing, what am I comparing? And, and I'm a pretty savvy shopper, and I'm really pretty careful, and I found it very confusing myself. So I think the confusion leads to less satisfaction. And a lot of these websites, you know, we don't have standard ways of, of comparing one you know, one uh, type of service to another, right? I mean, if I'm looking at even like credit monitoring now, I, I you know, I was on a, a task force to develop best best uh, standards for credit monitoring and, and identity theft services, but it was very hard. We spent months and months trying to say, what are the standards? What are what can we compare? That's apples and apples. So, don't you think that's part of it too, Trevor? I, I think that absolutely is. And so when we take uh, Barry Schwartz's or Sheena Yengar's idea and translate them into the field of privacy, it starts to raise really challenging questions because we are saying in many public policy circles and in many laws around the world that the choice is the answer. Choice is the way that we make sure that privacy issues are addressed. However, if, if we know from the research of people like Gina Yengar and Barry Schwartz and from the personal anecdotes of people like you and me, Mari, um, that, that we can't wrap our heads around all of the choices in front of us, that we can't respond to a huge amount of information, and we just guess sometimes, or we follow the default because we think that's what we're supposed to do. Or we ask, or we ask friends, right? That's right. so we get on our listserv, or we get on our Facebook, or whatever. And I know for me, I get on my listserv, and I go, "What do you guys think of this? You know, who has experience with these kinds of issues or these kinds of services?" And we try and at least get that kind of feedback because it's way too overwhelming. Well, and you know, in in many privacy decisions. 
the decisions seem so small uh, when they're made, and they are. They're, they're sort of point-in-time decisions that are made on a registration form or when you're filling out a credit card form online or giving your data at a, at a checkout. Um, you know, last year, uh, we had a, a keynote speaker, Dan Ariely, who wrote Predictably Irrational, and he had a great saying, and that is, he who controls the default controls behavior. Exactly. In other words, mm-hmm. whatever you set up as the default in that process becomes the predominant behavior in that process. It's just easier. It's, it's completely easier, and it is a crutch that we humans use when we have too much information to process. And so it, it, all of this adds up to how do we... How do we then look at choice as a public policy tool to respond to privacy concerns when choice as a concept has all of these concerns associated with it as well? And and, and how do we and how do we actually set up um, parameters for choice? Like what's what's really a valid choice versus an invalid choice? Do you know what I mean? What's a quality choice versus, you know, a poor chance of, of making a decision? You know, what? is so confusing versus what is so clear, concise, using language that anyone can understand. You know, I mean, when people make choices, if they don't understand what choice that they're making. So, I mean, that goes into it, too. How do you not only how do you define choice, but how do you set up standards for choice that they're that it's really a quality choice? Right. Yeah, I, I, I think you're raising absolutely critical questions certainly the type of questions that I hope people will be exploring at the summit um, next month. And that sounds, you know, just those speakers sound fascinating. I can't wait to get the books. Let me just introduce you again, because if, if you're driving by and you're hearing this wonderful, articulate guy who happens to say about funny, he, he is originally from Canada, and that's why he says about, but I love it. We're speaking with Trevor Hughes, who's, a, who's the president and CEO of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and he also is an attorney, and he is a privacy and technology expert. He obviously knows a ton about this. He's testified in Congress. He has been really involved for many years in the tech industry and privacy industry, and he really coordinates with major companies like Microsoft, Hewlett-Packard, all these big companies that that deal with privacy, and he is just wonderful. And he also has a new book, which you have to send me. I didn't get it. It's Privacy Law and Marketing. And then we can talk about that, too, Trevor. And um, so anyway, I wanted everyone to know that this summit, this fascinating summit that hopefully will have all 8,000 members or at least quite a few thousand, um, is being held March the 8th through the 11th, 2011 in Washington, D.C. And it's going to have international privacy people, everything from law professors, authors, privacy advocates, um, privacy officers from companies, privacy consultants, everybody who has some big concern who's been really involved with this. So we want you to also go to the website to see about that, and that's privacyassociation.org. So I noticed here that you are having one of my favorite people, Dr. Ann Kavukian, who also was on this show, and she is the Privacy Commissioner for Ontario, Canada, and she's a She's also going to be a keynote speaker, and I understand she's going to be talking about 
privacy by design. Doesn't that sound exciting? Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So Ann Kavukian is one of the most dynamic personalities in the entire field of privacy. I guess uh, second only to yourself, Mark. Oh, that just... <laughs> and she's wonderful. She, um, uh, she really is the champion of a concept called privacy by design. And um, uh, w- one of the things that that's beautiful about this concept is it it is so simple to describe and understand there is enormous complexity once you integrate it into an organization but really what privacy by design is about is building privacy concepts into your products and your services and your processes so that you don't have to bolt it on after the fact inevitably it is far less expensive to make sure that privacy issues are addressed in the development stage, in the design stage, then after the fact, as a post-facto look back and, and sort of slap of the forehead, and gosh, we should have done that differently. So, it, and, and it, you know, uh, the other thing, a lot of times people don't find out about it until after they've had a privacy glitch. Indeed. indeed. And, and so, yeah, I mean, even, you know, Senator Joe Simidian out here in California, who I adore, who is a very strong proponent of a technology, comes from the C- Silicon Valley. But that's one of the things that he has harped on also for many years is saying, you know, when they wanted to have the uh, driver's license with the embedded chip that had everything about us, he said, well, wait a minute. Before you go forward with a lot of this biometric stuff or RFID stuff, let's see if you can build in privacy into the architecture of the product to make sure that our California people are protected. And so this is something that is a growing issue. And hopefully by you guys bringing this to a conscious forefront, companies will start thinking, okay, we got to think about this at the same time that we're developing it is really integral to the product or service right i think that's right and so ann kavukian is going to talk about this concept that she has so tirelessly worked for over really the past decade um and uh, you know the european union is talking about privacy by design in their review of the european union directive their major privacy law. The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, has talked about privacy by design in their most recent report. And Kavukian has really found enormous traction with this idea, and uh, we're giving her a very big stage to share it with a very big audience because it is quite clearly one of the most important developments in our space in quite some time. And in many ways, Mari, it responds to some of the questions that we just asked about notice and choice. If we, if we are questioning whether notice and choice are working in the marketplace, it seems to me that privacy by design is one of the tools that we may be able to use to better address privacy concerns in the marketplace. You know, this kind of makes me think of of how the whole profession has grown. And there have been studies by the Poneman Institute, and I think you guys have done studies as well, about where in the corporate structure is the privacy officer? Are they reporting to HR? Are they reporting to IT? Are they reporting to the general counsel? Are they reporting to the CEO? And, are you know, if they're not involved in the development of the product or the service, then, you know, that there's like a disconnect, right? 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And so you're raising actually a couple of, of important issues. Uh, on the first, where does a privacy professional sit in an organization? We've done a bunch of research on this, and the answer is there's no single place. Um, many are in legal departments. Many are in compliance departments. You're right. Some are in technology areas. Some are in executive suites. Some report to a CEO, some to a general counsel, some to a board. I don't think there's a single right answer for an appropriate structure reporting-wise for a chief privacy officer or for a privacy leader. But what I can tell you is that when you have a privacy leader in place, it is critical that they are empowered to reach throughout the organization to bring privacy considerations to the entire enterprise. So make sure it's in your product development cycles. Make sure it's in your HR department. Make sure that it's in your marketing departments. Um, make sure that you're dealing with things um, through your legal and compliance functions as well. Um, privacy professionals are, are finding that, that in some ways they need to be incredible influencers within organizations because they cannot have enough staff to respond to all of the issues that get raised. In and they got to be mediators. They have to be able to work with marketing, who's obviously not going to always be happy with what they want to do, what they're telling yep. them they can't do, right? And they and they have to be able to work with the general counsel, you know, and say, hey, I got to mediate this because marketing wants to do this, and you're saying we can't do any of this. How do we find some happy ground here that we can still be compliant and not get sued, but still still be able to use this information to help our customers. So, yeah, you got you really have to be a mediator hat, which, you know, I can really relate to since I teach that stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. Privacy professionals um, need to exert influence and need to balance many different, sometimes conflicting concerns and influences within an organization. You know, you... You have this wonderful certification program, and I think five or six years ago I took the test, which wasn't easy. It was I thought it was just about as hard as studying for the bar because I had to know international privacy law, but thank God I passed. And um, so why don't we talk about that great certification program that, that the IAPP has developed for privacy professionals. And by the way, I just want to mention that if you're listening to this and you're on the campus of the University of California and you're very interested in this but you don't want to go to law school, you don't have to be a lawyer just because Trevor and I are lawyers, and I just want to reiterate that. So why don't you talk about that certification? Sure. So um, a number of years ago, seven years ago now, we recognized that in order for this profession to continue to mature, we needed some level of credential that would demonstrate an understanding of the field of privacy. So we developed the CIPP, Certified Information Privacy Professional, and that has now grown to 3,500 professionals around the world who are certified in one of five different modules that we have for CIPP. We have a core U.S. Uh, certification, and that's certainly our largest base of certified members. Um, but we also have a, a public sector, a government certification for the U.S. We have a Canadian certification, a European certification, and perhaps most interestingly, we have an IT certification uh, for IT professionals to have broad issue spotting in, uh, abilities in the field of privacy. And I think that's great because sometimes um, privacy and IT would be at odds, and we want 
you know, there's that old saying, you, you can have uh, security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. Right. And so to have a team approach and to bring them in, which you've started doing in the last few years, I think has been brilliant. I just need to tell you that. I think you're brilliant. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing on that, um, and, and it's an interesting analog to one of our employees here. Our vice president of operations uh, is a woman named Amy Sherwood, and she is a trained chef. She went to culinary school. And while she was at culinary school, she had to get a sanitation credential for kitchen sanitation, um, how cold fridges had to be and how long you could keep things in a warming tray and how to clean a kitchen. That makes now, sense to me. That makes a lot of sense when you see all these people getting sick and, and you know, I've gotten sick from a restaurant, so I, I really relate to that. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, when Amy graduated from culinary school, in no way did she think of herself as a kitchen sanitation engineer. Rather, she thought of herself as a trained chef. But that knowledge, that ability to respond to hygiene issues within the kitchen was critical to her ability to do her job. We think the same, that analog carries into the field of privacy in today's information economy. In other words, I think, we think, IT professionals around the world, whether they're database architects or applications engineers or software engineers or hardware engineers, they need to know enough about privacy so that they don't make a dumb mistake. And so that's where our certification now comes in. They may not think of themselves as a privacy professional, but increasingly in the information economy, they have enormous risk at their fingertips. And at that moment, when they're sitting in front of their keyboard and they have the ability to make a right or a wrong choice, for them to have the knowledge in their head that at least there might be an issue there. And maybe they don't even have the answer right then, but they know that they have to ask a question. That's an enormously valuable idea or an enormously valuable skill set um, in, in the information economy. And so we're really focused on taking that concept out to the marketplace now and saying, look, you might not be a privacy professional, but privacy is part of your job, just like kitchen sanitation was part of Amy's job. And just like privacy by design. I mean, even that for the, I, for the whole company, I, right? I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. In, in some ways, this idea dovetails quite nicely into privacy by design. This is how do you make sure across an enormous enterprise that every decision, all those critical moments all over your organization, when those moments come up that somebody makes the right decision, and you can't have enough privacy professionals to cover all of those questions, so you've got to have training and credentials that help you manage those, those risks. In, in people who are otherwise not doing privacy jobs. And, you know, it also, you know, was the, the opposite as well, because when I had to study for my CIPP, I had to learn some things about security. And so it was kind of cross-referenced. I had to, that was the part that was a little bit scarier for me because that is not my, my realm. And so I had to learn that. And I think that's, again, that learning to, to help each other and to know enough to ask the question, you know, for, for, for the privacy people to ask the questions from IT and the IT people to ask the questions from privacy. And, you know, and here in California, the privacy office used to be under the Office of Consumer Affairs. And you know Joan McNabb. She's a good friend of yours and mine. 
And um, and then we, uh, I think it was smart when they kind of put the two together in the same building and that they could communicate. And they are actually one under the one umbrella now that the Office of Privacy is also right with the Office of IT Security, which makes sense to me now, Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. We are speaking with a wonderful privacy expert. We're speaking with Trevor Hughes, who's the president and CEO of the International Association of Privacy Professionals with 8,000 members. And we're talking to him now because we're excited about the D.C. conference, March 8th through 11th. And I'm actually going to be going there with Lloyd and we're bringing our field recorder and we will have another show with all the great people that we are going to be interviewing and finding out about the newest privacy products. So it's very, very exciting so that you can see what's coming up. And you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. We air every morning, every Monday morning, rather, from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. So let me ask you a, a couple things. What do you think is going to be the biggest privacy issue facing those of us who are privacy professionals in 2011 and beyond? You know, I think the biggest issue is going to be the number of issues. Let me give you just a really quick snapshot of all of the things that are in play right now if you're trying to, to keep track of privacy in the marketplace. We have the Federal Trade Commission in the middle of the biggest review in at least a decade of their approach to privacy. They've issued a report. Um, uh, Currently, it is open for comment. That closes in a few days. We expect at some point this year the FTC to issue a final report, which will set their path, both from an enforcement perspective, but also for for what they expect from the marketplace um, sometime this year. Similarly, the Department of Commerce issued something they called a green paper um, and have asked for comment on that. That process just closed. They will also issue a final report, which will set the Department of Commerce's approach to privacy for the next few years. And they have some interesting ideas, including the the concept of creating a, a, a privacy office within the Department of Commerce with specific responsibility for public policy issues associated with privacy. So two major agencies, both working on broad marketplace, consumer protection related privacy issues right now, and both of them in a major state of flux. The Federal Communications Commission, in their net neutrality report, has talked about privacy. They may pick up issues there. Health and Human Services is issuing regs on healthcare privacy and particularly healthcare data breaches. And we have a brand new agency, um, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, uh, which is just being established now, which will have broad consumer finance privacy. Um, uh, public policy responsibilities, and we don't even know what that will look like. Those are just the agencies, and at least five of them are very much in an active stage in terms of developing new policy, new regulations, new approaches. Congress is relatively new this year, uh, with Republicans taking over the House and, and the numbers changing in the Senate. 
and we're already seeing the bills start to percolate and, and hearings begin on online privacy, particularly concepts like do not track are certainly on the table. There is so much going on right now that privacy professionals' heads are spinning. <laughs> and it, it, one of the biggest jobs for privacy pros right now is just keeping track of all of the things that are moving. And, and it's hard. I mean, I, I get my privacy clips, and I also get my privacy tracker, and I get everything from you. And I'm just, yeah, it is. It's, like, so hard to keep up with all of this stuff. Now, let me ask you something. You know, you talked about the Federal Trade Commission, and you talked about the Commerce Department. And, you know, in your home country from Canada, from mm-hmm. your prior home country, um, you have privacy commissioners. You have a a country privacy commission, just like many of the countries in the European Union and in New Zealand, Australia. They have a separate commission, right, that pretty much stands alone. It isn't like under an umbrella of the Commerce Department. Yep. Um, and that seems to put that commission, uh, it, gets, it seems to have more power, more influence. Am I correct or what? Well, I, um, I, I think it's a, I, I think it's up for debate, is what I would say. <laughs> Certainly, you are such a good, smooth mediator. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, I, certainly. It is a different approach than has been taken in the United States. Uh, Most European countries, in fact, all the members of the European Union under the EU Data Protection Directive are required to have an independent uh, data protection regulator. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, a number of other countries around the world also have data protection commissioners, privacy commissioners, information commissioners. They have a number of names, but it's all the same concept. With that said, enforcement powers differ around the world. Fining authority um, differs around the world. Investigative authority differs around the world. And frankly, staff and budgets differ around the world. We've done a benchmarking survey on data protection authorities around the world now for a couple of years, and the differences are really quite striking. There was also a, a fascinating law review article written recently by Deirdre Mulligan and Ken Bamberger. Oh, from Berkeley, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. indeed. And, and, and their article contrasted privacy on the books versus privacy on the ground. In fact, that was the title of the law review article. And basically, and this is a, a, a horrible way to compact a lot of really excellent thinking into just a couple of sentences, but Deirdre and Ken basically identified the U.S. as a privacy-on-the-ground approach, whereas Europe and other places around the world have focused more on privacy on the books. And when I look at that, and I think of the fact that we have about 5,000 members in the United States, and I know that there is a robust business management practice in the U.S. around protecting privacy within organizations, I can't say which is better. Um, I don't know which is better. All I can say is that they're different. And, and it may be that they're different because the cultures um, behind the, the legal systems that generate those responses are fundamentally different. It may just be that different approaches have evolved in, in different areas of the world. But they're, they're definitely different as to which gives better results. That's a much tougher question to answer. Yeah, it's such a patchwork here, you know. 
You've got all these different laws that are kind of a patchwork of it, whether it's financial privacy or Gramm-Leach-Bliley or HIPAA or anything else. You know, it just seems to me, and again, you've done all these studies, and I'll have to talk to Deidre about her study and look at it and probably have a show on it. But, but basically, it just seems that there is a high priority when the commission is is you know, independent. And maybe you're right. Maybe they're not, you know, they're not really walking their talk, so to speak, or there is at least this ideal to walk their talk, but they're not. Well, I'll give you a a great statistic to demonstrate this point. Um, uh, In Europe, we have a sister organization in France, the AFCDP. It's the Privacy Professional Association for French Privacy Professionals. They did a survey of their members and found that 82% of their members, 82% of the French marketplace, um, recognized that they were knowingly not in compliance with French data protection law. Mm -hmm. And when I think of that in contrast to the United States, where I certainly recognize just an, an unwavering focus on compliance, maybe there's less law. Maybe there, there is not a central regulator, but within the marketplace, there is an enormous focus on compliance with those things that we do have in place. Um, I, I, I certainly don't think we would, we would have perfect compliance in the U.S., but it's certainly not 82% noncompliance, admitted and knowing noncompliance by U.S. organizations. So... You know, you, you, you have to ask the question, is it better to have strong privacy on the books and a very clear central privacy regulator, or is it better to have privacy on the ground without an overarching privacy law and perhaps without a privacy commissioner or a standalone agency? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I right. certainly do know that the two approaches that we see uh, between Europe and the U.S., deliver different results, and and I think we can measure those results and argue about which is better. Right. It's fascinating. I mean, it's it's the ever the the question that we always are asking because we're we're always talking about. Well, you know, are we going to have a privacy commissioner? Are we? You know, I remember in the Clinton administration, we we had a little privacy czar, and I don't know if we're going to really have that privacy czar under Obama. We are going to have this. Why don't you talk about Obama as a privacy civil? What's it called exa- exactly? The privacy and civil liberties oversight. Right. Right. So so how is that? Let's talk about that. Sure. So this is a concept that came out of 9-11 and many of the things that were moving forward after 9-11 obviously raised civil liberties concerns. And as a result, Congress and the administration developed, um, I I, I guess, an oversight structure, if you will, um, within the administration, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. It's meant to be an independent board appointed by the president um, um, to, to do exactly what it says, oversee privacy and civil liberties within the government. Now, um, it was initially appointed by um, uh, uh, President Bush um, a number of years ago and, and was put in place. However, through a number of things that emerged, including lack of funding and lack of calling meetings, it never really got off the ground. 
it sat unappointed um, for a couple of years through Obama's uh, inauguration. And then just recently, we started to have some appointments made to that board, notably Jim Dempsey, um, who is based on the West Coast and is uh, with the Center for Democracy and Technology. And he's been on our show. (laughs) Um, He was named as one of the chairs of, of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. It is an organization, a structure, that we simply have not seen any work out of yet, I think, in any significant way. And as a result, it's really difficult to assess whether it's going to be effective or not. Um, I I think there has been an enormous amount of frustration, certainly in the advocacy community, but but in a lot of of privacy communities more generally, that what seemed to be a tool that that was going to be used to address privacy concerns really hasn't been given a chance yet to get fully functional to see really what it could do. Right. We're speaking with Trevor Hughes, who is the president of the International Association of Privacy Professional. He is an attorney. He is a privacy expert, a technology and marketing expert. He has testified in Congress. Obviously, you can hear how articulate he is, and he's very well-versed in privacy, and we think he is wonderful. And we're talking to him because he is in charge of this wonderful summit that is coming up March 8th through the 11th. In Washington, D.C., it's an international summit with privacy officers from all over the world to discuss these really important emerging issues. So let me ask you, Trevor, what about consumers? What do you think is going to be the biggest privacy or the biggest privacy issues for consumers as we move forward? I think we're entering into an interesting generational shift. I think consumers are going to develop tools of their own or they're going to demand tools of the marketplace that help them deal with the proliferation of data, the latency of data, the amount of data that is stored about them on the web, in the information economy, in the cloud. Um, And and we see this in many ways. Um, Consumers and, and when we say consumers, we really mean people. We mean you and me. We mean you and me and, and our kids. And, yeah. You, you know, it, it, my kids are pretty young, 12 and 10, and, and we haven't let them get into social networking or even have email addresses yet, but they'll have them eventually. And I know that my son um, will make a lot of the same mistakes that I made as a teenager. You know, in in some ways, being a teenager is about learning those limits of society and making some mistakes and stepping back from them and redirecting and making better choices in the future. But in today's world, many of those mistakes get documented on places um, like Facebook. And never get deleted, right? Never. And and (laughs) data latency, yeah, Yeah. that that data sticks around for a long time. So, you know, what what might have been a bad memory from spring break on a dog-eared photograph when I was in college now is a digitized photo that gets stored and copied a thousand times pretty soon after you upload it um, uh, in in today's world. 
I think consumers are going to have to figure out not only what the societal expectations are of each other, of society, when it comes to that kind of data being available, um, but, but also what they're going to demand from the organizations, from the technologies that they use in the marketplace. We had a great example of this at one of our recent conferences where this exact idea came up. How do we teach our kids about Facebook and what not to put up on Facebook and how not to make teenager mistakes when they're teenagers playing with this technology? And the answer came back was, we're not going to be able to teach them anything. They're going to make those mistakes because they're teenagers. That's what they do. Um, However, they're going to teach us how their generation learns to accept, deal with, and, and manage those issues in the future. In some ways, it's, it's like presidents and smoking pot, which sounds silly, but it's a great a- analogy for this. 20, 30 years ago, when Ronald Reagan ran for president, we, it would have been a straight-out litmus test. If you had smoked pot, you could not run for president. And that certainly was the case with with Ronald Reagan, with George Bush, but then Bill Clinton came along, and he tried it but didn't inhale. Then George W. Bush came along, and it was pretty clear he'd tried it, and then Barack Obama came along, and he wrote in a book that not only had he uh, smoked pop, but he'd also tried cocaine in his college years. Had we had a litmus test that said no president can become president if they've ever tried pot, there were a bunch of generations through the 60s and 70s that we just wouldn't have ever gotten presidents from because it was such a predominant experience for high schoolers and college-age kids back in those years. Similarly, I think, we're going to have to figure out how do we have people go into positions of leadership, get jobs, engage with each other, when some of their you know, embarrassing mistakes of their youth are out there on the internet still to be found. Um, I think that's a big issue for consumers. I think it's a fascinating societal issue. I love watching how that plays out in, in society in a really big way. You know, when you talk about this, it's such a moving target, too. So if you talk about education, you know, and and, uh, Rebecca Harold, you probably know her. She and I have talked about this, and we've written things about this. And just recently, we were blogging about this together on, uh, on uh, you know, an interview. But one... For me, when I think about these kids, and luckily my kids are a little older, but they also went through all this, um, it, it is so... So it is so, you know, untru- you know, it's not clear what they're doing. It's such a moving target. You don't know really what the tracking is. You don't even, you can't really just educate anybody because as soon as you try to educate them, it changes, and they can't really protect themselves, so to speak, and cons- because of the fact that it's so nebulous, you don't know what's happening online, and you don't know, like for example, your son may be like Mr. Straight Shooter. He doesn't do anything online. He's not on Facebook, but his friends may be taking pictures and putting up pictures on their own Facebook of your son, right? Yep. And so that so much of this is happening beyond their control, beyond our control. And I think about being a parent like you are, and I'm thinking parents, at least my parents, always wanted to protect me, educate me, train me, 
so that I would be a, you know, contributing ethical person as I'm an adult, right? I mean, that's what we try and do for our kids. And unfortunately, like you said, the kids are going to have to train us. I mean, we can't protect them too well. Because we don't even get it. It, It's such a moving target. And and that's my worry is somehow that that issue of how do we really protect people and still give them free choice and freedom. That's that's a real rough one, don't you think? I think it's I, I, I think you've absolutely nailed it, Mari. We we sit in an incredibly important position right now in the field of privacy. We are the people who are trying to craft the solutions that will allow society to enjoy the benefits of the information economy without destroying some of those, con- those, those component parts of our humanity which we hold so dear. And, and, and that's, a, that, that's a big job. It's, it's an incredibly exciting job, um, but, but it's an incredibly important job as we move forward into the generations ahead. So that kind of leads me to the last question, since we don't have a lot of time. But I'm just wondering, you know, as I'm getting excited to go to this summit, March 8th through the 11th in Washington, D.C., at the International Association of Privacy Professionals, what is the mission of the IAPP when we're talking about all these huge issues? So what is the mission as we go forward? So the IAPP is a not-for-profit professional association. Nobody owns the IAPP. I don't own it. You don't own it. Our, our, our members collectively own the organization. And our mission is to define, promote, and improve the profession of privacy globally. But that's just a statement, and it's a pretty clear statement, and you could probably find something similar in a lot of professional associations. I think we actually have a role in the broader discussion about privacy, though. And our job is to create and educate and, and help those people sitting in those meetings when all of those critical decisions about privacy are being made. Because at the end of the day, all the best technology in the world, all the best laws in the world, all of it is for naught if you don't have somebody sitting in that room at that moment of decision who can make a good decision. And so we see ourselves as the people behind that person. We're the organization that networks them to their colleagues so that they are well-connected to their peers and to their field. We educate them. We certify them. We help them stay on top of everything they need to stay on top of so that they're better able to make those decisions at all of those critical moments in the years ahead. And, you know, I get all excited when I come to that conference because I learn more and more. And I've learned from my own involvement in this profession is that privacy and liberty are so connected that as if we don't have privacy and we don't really respect privacy of the individual and respect that boundaries, that um, we also will lose our liberty. So I'm excited to come to the conference, and I thank you so much for all the great work that you do for the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Trevor Hughes, you're really wonderful, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mari. I can't wait to see you next month. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And there you can see our upcoming guests, their pictures, link to their websites, look at their books. You can also write us emails about what's important to you or what you're worried about with privacy in the information age, which is absolutely huge. Thank you for joining us. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Join the celebration. Come to Celebrating Mediation Week in the OC on March 18th from 9 to 4 at Coastline Community College in the Garden Grove campus. You'll be treated to a delicious continental breakfast and lunch. You'll network with master peacemakers, learn from VIP speakers. Attorneys will receive five hours of MCLE credit. Don't miss this great event. Register now at ocmediationconference.org and join the fabulous learning and great celebration.